Would you pray with me for a moment as we come to God's word today? Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you that your word speaks to every generation and every situation. And today as we continue to study the life of Jonah, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would comfort, that you would convict, that you would challenge and that you would change us to be more like your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever ran away from home. Now, I mean as a kid, I'm not talking about as an adult when you have a fight with your husband or wife and just storm out of the house. I'm sure some of you have done that. But as a kid, I wonder, did you ever run away from home? I did it, I think I must have been maybe eight or nine years old, and I can't even remember why I did it. I probably wanted something and my parents wouldn't give it to me. And obviously they were in the wrong because when you're eight or nine, you're always right. But I thought I'll show them. So I walked out of the house and I went down the street. I probably walked 50 meters down the street. And at the end of our street, there was a little white church. It was like a little gospel hall type thing. And in between it and the house beside it, there was an alleyway. And I went down the alleyway and I thought, I'm going to hide here. I'll show them. When they, when they panic and they realize I've run away from home, I'll get whatever I want in the future. So I went and I hid down in the alleyway and I crouched down. Five minutes passed. Ten minutes passed. I thought, you know what, I'll hear. I'm sure I'll hear shouts of, Craig, Craig, where are you, Craig? Nothing. Fifteen minutes, nothing. I thought I'll see blue flashing lights, search and rescue here. Maybe a helicopter in the sky looking for me. Absolutely nothing. It started to rain and I didn't want to get wet, so I just went home in the end. Walked into the house and dad was watching football and mom was making dinner and they hadn't even noticed I was gone. They thought I was in my room playing. I realized that day something, that running away doesn't really work. And Jonah is going to discover that. We're going to continue this series that we started last week, looking at the life of Jonah. We call it the fugitive. It could also have been called the runaway prophet. Because Jonah is a prophet from, of God, but 800 years before Christ. And God speaks to him and commands him to do things. And he's been a really successful prophet up until now. But one day God speaks to him and tells him to do something he doesn't want to do. You know, isn't it amazing that sometimes we go, God, I need to hear from you. I'd love a word from God. God, would you speak to me? And then God does speak to you and you think, God, not that word, kind of a different word. Because maybe he tells you something you don't want to do. You see, sometimes we tend to think that God's will and my will are always going to be aligned. That God exists for my comfort or convenience and that God will always agree with me. But sometimes God will tell you to go that way and you want to go that way. And it's in those moments that we discover who's really the Lord of our lives. You see, it's easy to raise our hands and say, God, you're my king, Jesus, all for Jesus, all to Jesus I surrender. But it's only in those moments when God says, give and you don't want to give. Forgive and you don't want to forgive. I want you to do this and you want to do that. I want you to let go of this, but you want to hold on to it. It's only in those moments that we discover who is really Lord of our lives. What does God ask Jonah to do that's so terrible? He asks him to go to Nineveh to prophesy. Now, Nineveh was a famous city in modern-day Iraq. And it was famous or infamous, should I say, for its brutality. It was incredibly innovative at finding new ways to torture people. 
They took great delight in expressing their wickedness in as many graphic ways as possible. I talked about some of them last week. They would skin people alive. They would cut off heads. They would, they were just, they, their goal was to terrify all the nations around them into submission to the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah's told to go there and preach this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jonah does not want to go. And it's not because he's afraid of coming home in a box. It's not because he's afraid of failure. Because up until now he's been a successful prophet. It's because he's actually afraid of success. You see, his greatest fear is coming between God's wrath and the Ninevites. As far as he's concerned, he wants them completely wiped off the face of the earth. And this prophetic word that he's got to deliver, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed, it sounds like a good word to him in one sense, it's judgment. But if God wanted to destroy them, why not just do it now? Why send a prophet to give them 40 days warning? You see, Jonah realizes that God has given them a second chance. That God is giving them time to repent so that he can relent from pouring out his judgment and wrath. And Jonah doesn't like that one little bit. He wants them to get every bit of punishment that he thinks they're due. You see, as far as he was concerned... Him and God's people of Israel, they were the only people who deserved God's grace. Anybody else was outside of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And especially the Ninevites. And the last thing he wants is to go there and to have them repent. And that God would give them a second chance. And so Jonah runs Nineveh was about 500 miles east of where he was. He decides to go to a place called Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles west of where he was. Tarshish, as we saw last week, was it's the southeast corner of, of Spain. It's Costa del Tarshish. It, was, it had gained a bit of a reputation in those days as this beautiful, stunning, mystical, mythical paradise. It was literally as far as you could go in the world at that stage. It was kind of, they, they kind of considered that's where the world ended. That's where you dropped off the edge of the world at that stage. So he's trying to get a, as far away from God as possible. So instead of going to Nineveh where there's skin people alive, he goes to this beautiful paradise, this beautiful place of Tarshish. Now he's not going for a holiday and to get a suntan. We're told very clearly that the reason he's going is to get as far away from God as possible. And the question I want to ask you is this. Where do you run to? Where do you run to? Where do you run to when you're running away from God? Where do you run to when you're hungry? When you're angry? When you're lonely? When you're tired? When you're stressed? When you're anxious, when life is hard, we all have a Tarshish. Do you know what Tarshish is? It's the place we go to seek comfort. It's the place we go to self-medicate. It's the place we go to seek solace and relief and release 
and some sort of dopamine hit or something to, that we think is going to bring us happiness or, or joy. We, we all go to somewhere or something. We may not go to a physical place, but we all have somewhere that when life doesn't go as we hoped or planned or dreamed, we run to. As far as Jonah was concerned, he was getting as far away from God as possible. God in his mind existed only in the boundaries of Israel. And so the further he got from God, the further he got from God's presence, which we know is completely false. He saw it a bit like radio waves. The further away you get from the the transmitter, the the weaker the, the signal becomes. And so he wanted to run away from God. Where do you run to? Where do you go to? Where do you self-medicate? Maybe we run to the bottle. I just need a drink. We run to sex or porn, pleasure or drugs, something just to take the edge off. We run to destructive relationships because we believe that a little bit of companionship is better than being on our own. And we, we long for some sort of affection and for somebody just to be there for us, even if they're not the right person. We run to the shops, <laughs> or we used to, from tomorrow. I know I'll not be running to the shops too much. It'll be online. But, but we, we go on Amazon. We go on boohoo.com. We go on all of these websites, and suddenly parcels keep arriving at the door because we are, we are, we're self-medicating on retail therapy. We call it retail therapy for a reason. We run towards food. We call it comfort eating. And so we eat our own body weight and cake and chocolate and crisps. That's how we self-medicate. We binge on TV and Netflix. And you know, many of these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with watching TV. There's nothing wrong with relationships. There's nothing wrong with shopping. But it's when we do them excessively as a means to medicate the pain in our lives to bring comfort that only God can give. When we're turning to these things instead of turning to God, the Bible actually says these things are idols. Anything we turn to when we should turn to God is an idol in our lives. And the Bible very clearly says you shall not have any idols. Jonah goes to Tarshish. I wonder where you go to. Because I I find that There's always a Tarshish available. There's always somewhere that will give us a quick fix. There's always somewhere that will ease our pain temporarily. There's always somewhere that will give us that dopamine hit and give us that little spike of joy that we want. But it never lasts. It's a bit like sticking a sticking plaster over a broken leg. It doesn't really heal anything. And there's always a Tarshish available. There's always an alternative to God's way. There's always another option. When God tells you to do something, it's amazing how many other options open up. How many alternatives start to look attractive. Look at verse 3 with me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship that was bound for that port. Notice it says he found a ship. That little phrase was highlighted to me today. He found a ship. Because when you're running from God, you'll always find what you're looking for. When you're running away from God, you'll always find what you're looking for. 
And Jonah gets to Joppa, and isn't it amazing? There just happens to be a ship going to Tarshish. This beautiful place that's a bit like the Maldives or Bali or West Belfast. It's just meant to be stunning. And Jonah gets there, and I'm surprised it didn't say, and there just happened to be one ticket left, and Jonah got the last ticket. Because when you're running away from God, when you're going in the opposite direction of God, sometimes it feels like everything's fallen into place. Sometimes it feels like, like God's almost blessing you. Sometimes it feels like you've got away f- with it. Sometimes I hear Christians say something like this. I know it doesn't seem right, but God wouldn't have opened the door for me if he didn't want me to go through it. I know this fella doesn't seem right for me, but why would God have brought him into my life if he didn't want me to be with him? (laughs) Even though his middle name is Beelzebub. You know, I know it's maybe not right, but you know, it was amazing. I was just thinking on Saturday night how lonely I was. And I said, God, I would love a man in my life. And at 11.30, I got a text message from this guy saying, what are you doing? And I went around to his place and made a really good chat. I bet you did. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it feels to right. And if God didn't want me to do it, he'd make me feel more guilty than I do, wouldn't he? You know, not every so-called opportunity is one that you have to take. Not every door that opens is one that God has opened for you. Sometimes Satan opens doors. Not everything that arrives in your doorstep is an opportunity from God. Sometimes Satan packages things and sends them to you. Not every ship that is there for you at the right time comes from God. Sometimes it's from the devil and it's a shipwreck. It's amazing, but because when when we really want to do something, Even if deep down we really know it's not God's will, it's incredible how we will find our way to rationalize it and justify it in our own heads, isn't it? I used to find this with young people when I did more youth work. I used to get young people coming to me and say, Craig, can I ask your opinion about something? And and my response after a while, because I knew what was coming, I would say, do you want my opinion or do you want me to agree with you? Because they were normally coming to tell me something they were doing that they knew I wouldn't agree with, but they were trying to get my approval. So I would say, are you actually genuinely looking my opinion, or are you looking at me just to give you permission and to condone what you're doing? And they'd look sheepishly at me and go, well, I just kind of want to keep doing it anyway. And I'd go, well, then why, why, why do we need the conversation? Until you're in a place where you actually really want to do what is the right thing, what's the point in me giving you what I believe to be the right thing to do? It's amazing when we set our heart on something, how we convolute our thoughts and our ideas to somehow rationalize and justify doing it or having it. It's a bit like buying stuff, isn't it? You know, you you really want to buy something, but you don't have the money. But you come to all sorts of reasons why you just have to have it. And sure, you'll save money eventually, and you'll sell something on eBay that'll cover. I mean, it's it's a bit like, you know, we do the same with sin. We do the same when we disobey God. We can, we're incredibly creative at coming up with reasons why we can do it. My friend Jeff Lucas, who's a, a preacher and a, a, a writer, he says this, Christians don't so much fall as they slide away from God. Christians don't so much fall as they slide. That's true, isn't it? I mean, I have never met a, somebody who was once passionately serving God, loving God, on fire for God one day, and the next day they get up and they fall away from God. And you say to them, 
what happened ago. I just woke up this morning and decided I didn't believe anymore. I have never in 30 years of following Christ had that happen. But I have had probably hundreds of friends who have been passionate on fire about God, but they reach a crossroads in their life and they know God wants them to go this way, but they want to go that way. They have a decision to make and they go their own way. And for the first while, everything seems to be going fine. They're still showing up at church. They're still in touch. They're still, and then suddenly, things start to change. And slowly, they start to drift. And they tend to slide away. And three months later, they're nowhere to be seen. It seemed like their hearts were still set on God. But gradually, they slip and they slide away. Much further than they ever intended to go. Look at verse 4 with me. Then the Lord sent a great wave on the sea, and such a violent storm rose that the ship threatened to break up. Just when everything seems like it's going Jonah's way, the storm hits. And I find that when I run from God, things seem to go my way for a while. In fact, it can almost seem like God's blessing me. But eventually a storm hits. Eventually things start to fall apart. Eventually life stops working. My peace goes. My confidence goes. My life feels empty. The joy dissipates. I get into bother. I go further than I intended. I get trapped in habits and things that I didn't mean to get trapped into. I get stuck in relationships that I didn't want to be in long term. Running from God can seem like a really good idea to begin with, but somebody has once said this, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, and it will always cost you more than you wanted to pay. When you run away from God, you always end up further than you wanted to go, and it always costs you more than you wanted to pay. The phrase I often use is this, you can't live wrong and feel right. And some of us are wondering why we don't feel right in our lives right now. Maybe it's because we're living wrong. And we try everything else to feel right. We want to feel happy. We want to feel confident. We want to feel joyful. But we're just not willing to change our lifestyle. We're not willing to go God's way. But eventually, you have to face up to reality. Eventually, something happens. And you're confronted with the reality of your situation. And you get some perspective. And one of the ways that happens is that you go through a storm. Look at verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and cried out, each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Storms bring out what's inside of us. These godless pagan sailors suddenly become incredibly spiritual. They all start crying out to their own gods. It's like one's praying to Allah, one's praying to Buddha, one's praying to Krishna, one's praying to Mother Earth. They're all just trying, whoever's up there, just help us. It's amazing how unspiritual people will suddenly become spiritual in a storm. Have you noticed that? The person in your work, the person in school, the person in college, the person in your street, who doesn't want to hear about God, when the storm hits, they're so much more open to those conversations. Storms also sort out our priorities. Do you notice they threw the cargo overboard in the storm? The cargo was probably worth a fortune. It was the most valuable thing in the ship. But when storms hit, we start to determine what's actually really important and what's not important. And I've seen that so often in life, particularly with men, particularly with businessmen in their 60s. As I've sat with them in hospital and 
prayed with them after maybe a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. These men who have been so driven, it's, all about been career, it's been all about career and they've maybe neglected their families and they, it's just been about making money in the big house and the golf club and the nice car and suddenly they're lying horizontal on a bed and they're terrified. And they, for the first time in their lives are confronted with their mortality. They're confronted with something more important than their reputation and their status in the community. They start to ask the questions that are really important. Every person at some stage finds themselves in a storm. Sometimes it's of our own making. You know, sometimes the devil, I always say, you know, we, we like to blame, as Christians, we blame Satan for way too much. He gets way, way, way too much credit. It's just the devil doing this. It's just the enemy against me. Maybe it's your own stupidity. Maybe it's your own stubbornness. Maybe it's your own rebellion. Maybe Satan's able to have a four-week holiday in Lanzarote because he doesn't have anything to do because you're doing his job for him. Sometimes we end up in storms simply because we're running away from God, we're rebelling against God, and when you run away from God, things don't go right. Maybe you've discovered that. Things don't go right. Someone has said this, that we're not so much punished for our sins as we are by our sins. In other words, sin in itself brings its own punishment. Sin in itself leads to its own consequences in our lives that we'd rather not get into. Sometimes sin or storms are caused by ourselves. Sometimes storms are caused by the actions of others. We did nothing wrong, but somebody around us, somebody close to us, somebody in our family, somebody else does something, and we get caught up in their storm. I'm sure that's happened to you. These sailors on the boat with Jonah, they, I mean, they weren't exactly a bunch of choir boys, but they were in a storm because of their sin. They were in a storm because of Jonah's rebellion. Wherever the storm comes from, we all go through them. And we, we discover that after the storm, we've changed. Life is rarely the same again. We get realigned and readjusted in a different direction. So the sailors, they're, they're praying and panicking. What's Jonah doing? Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Jonah's lying before deck, or below the deck. He is completely comatose. Now, again, how do you sleep through a storm like this? This isn't a wee gentle breeze. This is almost a hurricane gale force storm, so much so that those guys who were used to being on the sea are terrified. Do you know what I think it is? Running from God is absolutely exhausting. Running from God is absolutely exhausting. You know, doing God's will can be tiring. It can be hard work. But it is nowhere near as exhausting as running from God. Sin is exhausting. Sin promises so much pleasure and it just delivers pain and heartache and weariness. You know, in Psalm 32, David is reflecting on his own time on the run from God. He'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and for a year he didn't repent. But look, I, I don't have the verses on the screen because I just, I'm, I feel prompted to, to share this. So before he repents, in the year that he's running from God, 
He says this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. What he's saying is, you know what? Unrepented sin is absolutely draining and exhausting. When you have sin in your life, when you have rebellion in your life, when you have uh, constantly turned your back on God, you will be miserable. I have never met a happy backslider. They might look like they're happy for a little while, but I've never met a happy backslider. There's no one more miserable than a Christian who's running from God. Jonah's running from God, and as a result, he's absolutely physically, emotionally, and spiritually wrecked. You know, I think it's funny that the pagan captain of the ship is the one telling God's prophet to wake up and pray. Sometimes I think the world understands the importance of prayer more than the church. I mean, Jonah represents God's people here. The captain represents the world. And the world sometimes is crying at the church and saying, wake up! Church, wake up! Can you not see the storm around us? And we're all sitting in our basement singing, come by ya and bind us together, Lord. And the world is saying, we need you to pray. We need you to be the church. We need you to call on God for us. We have no hope. So please, will you call on your God for us? Because without you, we'll not make it through the storm. Let's keep reading verses 7 to 9. Then the sailors said to each other, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where's your country? From what people are you? Where do you come from? Where do you go? Where do you come from? Kotnai, Jonah. He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. I think that's hilarious. Suddenly Jonah's got all spiritual again. I am a Hebrew. I worship God. Really? The God that you're running 2,500 miles from? You see, some of us are really good at professing our beliefs and our faith in God, but we're not actually living them with our lives. I read this recently. In truth, what we really believe in, we live by. All the rest is religious froth. When you really believe in something, it changes your life. But if you say you believe in something and it doesn't impact your life, it's just religious froth. But something else, maybe I'm being harsh on Jonah here. Maybe something else has happened in the storm. Maybe the storm has reawakened Jonah's identity. That Jonah forgot who he was. Jonah forgot that he was one of God's people. Jonah forgot that he was called of God. Jonah forgot the mission and mandate on his life. Jonah forgot the purpose of his life. Jonah forgot his identity as a child of God. Jonah forgot that he was called to be a mouthpiece, a prophet of God. And maybe the storm has helped him to remember who he is. And sometimes the storms in our lives will do that. They'll force us to remember who we really are. Not what the world says about us, not even what we say about us, but what God says about us. Let's keep reading. We're going to finish up down to verse 16. 
This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. At least Jonah admits his sin. At least Jonah realizes it's his fault. He's willing to take responsibility. Sometimes we just keep going further and further from God. You know, I remember when we lived in Dublin, there was a bus stop outside our house. Uh, and one day I got on the, the number 68 instead of the 123. Now the 68, when it got to the end of our street, went right. The 123 went left into the city centre. So I got onto the 68. As soon as I'm on it, I realise I'm on the wrong bus. And I'm going to go in completely the wrong direction. But here's what goes through my head. This bus is packed. These people have just seen me getting on. I can't get off at the next stop. I'll look absolutely ridiculous or I'll look lazy. I went seven stops the wrong direction out of pride. And then had to get off the bus about a mile and a half away and walk back again. It's amazing how far some of us will go out of pride and stubbornness because we don't want to admit we're going the wrong direction. At least Jonah here admits he's going the wrong direction. Let's keep reading. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah... They threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. You see, in Scripture, we see God allowing storms. In Scripture, we see God stilling storms. But occasionally, we also see God sending storms. And that's the bit we're most uncomfortable with, isn't it? That God would send a storm. Why would he do that? Well, God is intervening in our lives because he's more committed to us than we could ever imagine. What God wanted to do was to change Jonah's heart. You see, God could just have got another prophet. Jonah wasn't the only prophet in Israel at that time. God could have got somebody else, but he was so committed to Jonah. He was so committed to changing Jonah's heart that he was willing to do whatever it took to turn Jonah around. The grace that he had towards Jonah was the same grace as he had towards Nineveh. And sometimes God will send us a storm. And he's not sending it so much to harm us, but he's sending it to heal us. He's not sending it to wound us. He's sending it to woo us back. He's a God who loves us so much that he will not let us get so far away from him that there's no way back. And so sometimes, after he's tried everything else, sometimes God will send a storm into our lives. Not to punish us, but to bring us back to him. God relentlessly pursues rebellious people. No matter how great our sin, God's grace reaches further. 
You see, you think you can outrun God. You can never outrun his grace. And for Jonah, there would only have been one thing worse than being thrown overboard. And that would have been for God to let him get his own way. And sometimes a storm looks like a punishment. But it's actually an intervention. And the intervention is an invitation to return home. Have you ever seen an intervention? Have you ever had an intervention in your family? I'm sure you've probably seen one on TV. An intervention is when somebody is living in a way which is so self-destructive that they're harming themselves and everyone around them. And their loved ones can't take it anymore and so they stage an intervention. And they don't do it out of anger or hatred, they do it out of love. And they organize a, a, a meeting where they confront this person with the reality of where they are in life and the road they're going down and the path of destruction they're going down in the hope that they'll turn around. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God will intervene in our lives. Sometimes he will do it through other people. Sometimes he'll do it through a sermon like this. Sometimes he'll do it through life circumstances. And sometimes he will do it through a storm. But the goal is not to hurt you. The goal is to heal you. The goal is not ultimately to wound you, but to woo you and to bring you home. And sometimes the question isn't how long will you run from God, but it's what will it take to bring you back? How much will God have to do to bring you home? Because he will do whatever it takes. Even when Jonah couldn't get far enough from God, God's relentless grace was willing to chase him down and pursue him. And we'll see next week just how far God went in doing that. Let me finish with a story. Now, I've told this story in hope before, and I don't even know if I'm going to tell it in the service, but I felt really prompted to share this story online. It's a story I heard recently uh, from a pastor called Robert Morris, who leads a big church called Gateway in Texas. And he was a guest preacher at another church in another city. And as he's preaching, he sees an elderly lady in the congregation. And in that moment, he feels like he's got what we would call a word of knowledge, like a prophetic word for her. And, and he's not sure what to do, but he stops and he, he looks at her and he says, Mom, he's from Texas. He says, I just have to tell you that I feel really strongly that God wants you to teach other women how to pray for their husbands, especially for women whose husbands aren't Christians. I believe that God really wants you to teach them how to pray for their husbands, that they will come to know Christ. And as he's saying it, he's, he's panicking on the inside. He doesn't know who this woman is. Maybe her husband's an elder. Maybe, you know, but, but he really strongly feels that, that this is what he, he's got to share. And he's stepping out in faith. And so he finishes his sermon, and after the service, the pastor calls him over and says, Robert, you need to meet that lady that you gave that word of knowledge to. And he, he brings Robert over, and the lady's sitting there, and, 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 and the pastor says, tell Robert your story. And this is her story. She was married to a man who was an unbeliever for 42 years, and she prayed for him every single day for 42 years that he would accept Christ. One day on a business trip, they lived in Oklahoma. He was on a business trip in Florida. He got into a car accident and was instantly killed. His wife was absolutely devastated. 
She had lost her husband. About a month after he was killed, the phone rang in her house. And she picked it up and the man on the other end of the line asked, could he speak to her husband? And she explained to him that her husband had been killed in a car accident. And the man was incredibly apologetic, as you can imagine. He said, oh, how did, when did that happen? And she said, it happened a month ago in Florida when he was on a business trip. And the other guy on the phone got very silent. And he said, ma'am, can I ask you exactly when that happened? And she gave him the precise time and date that it happened. And the man said, ma'am, I've got some news for you. That morning I woke up and I was praying. He said, I'm a businessman. I wear a shirt and tie. I wear a suit to work. I, I drive a nice car. But that morning as I was praying, I felt God say to me that I had to go up to the highway and stick my thumb out and hitch a ride to work. And he said, I argued with God and I argued with God. I was going to be mortified. There's me standing in a suit at the edge of the highway with my thumb out. But he said, the impression from the Lord was so strong that I did it. So I stood on the edge of the highway with my thumb out. And he said this, ma'am, your husband stopped and he picked me up. And as we were driving, we had a conversation. And before I left his car that day, I had the privilege of leading your husband to faith in Christ. It's incredible what God will do to pursue those who run away from him. And I want to say to you today that no matter how far you think you've gone, the Father's arms are open wide to welcome you home if you'll just return to him. You can never go too far. You can never have done too much that he won't welcome you back.